been walking through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is a section in Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is like a three-chapter sermon that Jesus gives on a mountain. And he covers a variety of topics, and we are going to cover three of those topics today from verses 33 down to 48. But as we look at these commands, I think it's really important to continue to set all of these commands in some sort of context. Jesus didn't get on a mountainside and was like, here's, you know, 50 new commands I'm going to give you. Do this, do this, don't do that, do that. But there is, in all of those commands, a context. There is a story. And, the, and what Jesus is preparing his disciples for is preparing them to go out to the nations, to make disciples, to, to create churches, to create followers of Jesus who would live in a unique way. That as they lived in this unique way, they would actually become God's presence in the world. So how would people come to know who God is like? How would they come to follow Jesus? How would they know what it is like to live out the life that Jesus lived? And Jesus tells us that he does that through his people. Here's a little tangent that I'm going to go on just right now. I've been reading a lot this week, and I keep seeing lots of these comments about, we don't need the church. I have my personal relationship with Jesus. Ever heard this? Like, my individual personal relationship with Jesus. And what I want to say to you is that, in one sense, yes, you will, as an individual, stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I can't stand before you, and you can't stand for me. But at the same time, you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. You have a communal relationship with Jesus. That to actually relate with Jesus means you must relate with his people. And Jesus, in these commands that he's given to his disciples and all the people that are listening to him, these are commands that they are called to live out together. This isn't like, oh, I did my checklist this week, or I did this, or I did... No, this is what a collective group of people who claim to follow Jesus say, we are going to live this way. Why? So that we can, as Pastor Nate a month ago talked to us about, be the salt of the earth, and to be the light of the world. And this morning, we're going to cover three areas that Jesus tells us to live in a unique way as a people to be salt and light in the earth. And those three things are, number one, the truthfulness of our life. The truthfulness of our life. Number two, how we react when we're wronged. How we react when we are wrong. And then finally, we're going to talk about why we should love our enemies. Father, as we look at these three things about our life, our reaction to people and how we actually proactively love people, we need your Spirit to help us understand, not just with our minds, but with our hearts and with our lives, and so we pray that you will do that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read verses 33 down to 37. Jesus says, again, you have heard it, that it was said to the people long ago, long ago, do not break your oath, 
But fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. All you need to simply say is yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So this... This mantra that we keep seeing Jesus say is, you've heard it this, but I'm going to tell you this. And, and there is no direct Old Testament statement from any place in the Old Testament where Jesus makes a statement, do not break your oath, but fulfill it. But what Jesus is doing is he's putting together several Old Testament texts, like one from Leviticus. It says, don't swear by my name falsely, and in doing so, you will profane my name. So there is this idea that in the Old Testament, that you would take an oath. You would make this covenant with God, with others, with yourself. And what Jesus is saying here is, don't make an oath at all. So I don't know if you've heard this before, but some people actually think this prohibits them from taking an oath in a courtroom. You ever heard that? Uh, some people say that they cannot take an oath of allegiance their desire, what I would say, to obey God's word is admirable. But I don't know that that's necessarily what Jesus is saying. I don't think he says you can't swear on the Bible when you're in court anymore, that, you, that if you do that, you're actually breaking this command. Why? Well, first, as we saw in the Old Testament, there are places where Old Testament people were making oaths to God and to other people. Or in the New Testament, Paul himself swears like makes a promise, makes an oath before God is his witness throughout his writings. And more importantly, we see in the New Testament that God himself makes oaths. So it's not necessarily that making oaths in and of themselves is wrong, but why does Jesus say don't make any oaths at all? What is he getting at? By the time Jesus' day came, like Matthew, sorry, uh, Moses wrote the law, we're just going to say 1400, Jesus is around 25 B.C., so we've got about 1,400 years of history that transpires. And during these 1,400 years, the laws of Israel began to take more and more shape. In fact, the Old Testament uh, rabbis and, and people of the law would actually begin to add more and more laws to what God had given them. And eventually, then what we call the Mishnah, and you may not know what the Mishnah is, but it's a, it's a document that the Jewish people have put together of all of the laws and their commentary on the laws. And in this book, this commentary, they have a whole section dealing with oaths. And this was written during Jesus' time, so it's not, you know, just so you know, it's contemporary to what Jesus was about. And so, for example, one rabbi says that if you swear by Jerusalem, you are not bound by your vow. But if you swear towards Jerusalem, you're bound by your vow. Okay, did you catch that? Like, facing east. I don't even know which way east is. But we're going to pretend east is this way. Okay, it's probably not. But as long as you say, I swear by Jerusalem, that I will give you $1,000... I don't have to fulfill that. Why? Because I wasn't facing Jerusalem. Isn't that weird? Like, this is what they made laws about. Why would they make laws about that? Because people were actually doing it. 
Like that is something we need to come into context. Like this may sound absolutely crazy to us, but these people were so bound up with oaths that they would make all of these promises to one another and then they would find loopholes to get out of them. And Jesus says, this is what I'm asking you to do. Stop making oaths. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Be a truthful person. For Jesus, this was an, on, an issue of honesty and integrity for who you are as a person. For any person, any person is a citizen of the kingdom of God, we should be truthful to who we are and what we say we are. There is no need to make an oath to support an assertion. And, you know, we are weird in this. You ever heard that phrase, I swear to God? You ever heard that phrase? Okay. In the Old Testament era, in Jesus' day, to make that swear, to make that oath to God was far more than just a statement. You'd have to shake hands and go through these rituals. But in our day, it's just like, I swear to God, I will never do that again. And what Jesus is saying is, stop swearing, stop making oaths, and just be truthful to do what you're going to say you're going to do. Here is one way that I think this text applies to us as Christians today. How many of you say to people, oh, I'm so sorry, I will pray for you? And then how many of you actually pray for them? I'm just going to be honest. As a pastor, I really want to pray for you. When I say that, I deeply believe I want to pray for you, but I probably very often forget to pray for you. And so... What I'm trying to do in my everyday life is when I say I'm going to pray for you, I do it right then. Does that make sense? Like, I'm going to pull you aside, and rather than just say I'm going to pray for you, I'm actually just going to take 15, 20 seconds and pray with you. For me, that's like being honest to what you're saying. Like, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you're going to pray for someone, pray for them. Don't just do the Christian platitudes. So Jesus, first off, is telling us we need to be truthful in how we actually relate to each other. That if we're going to be a, a new kingdom, if we're going to be a new citizen of God on earth people, then we need to be people who are truthful. Now you're like, that's pretty easy. I can probably do that. In fact, what I try to do is promise way less and deliver way more. Does that make sense? Stop telling people you're going to do things. When you actually do them, they're always really happy. But if you tell your wife you're going to do 15 things, you don't do any of them, they're mad. But when you do 15 and you never said anything, man, she's happy. Right? That's not Bible. That's Scott. <laughs> but number two, these, I think, as we go through this text, become incrementally more difficult to actually deal with. And the second thing Jesus wants to deal with is how we react when we have been wronged. Look in verse 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, then turn the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. 
An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is what we call a lex talionis, like a, a law of retribution. It was a phrase throughout used throughout the Old Testament. So, for example, here's a fun law if you're listening. If you want to write it down, you look later. Exodus 21 says this. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury. Okay, like, can you see how detailed this law is? Two guys are fighting. All of a sudden, while they're fighting, they hit the pregnant wife, but there's, she gives birth prematurely, but there's no serious injury. The result is the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. allows. But if, there is no seri- but if there is serious injury, you're to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. You didn't know the Old Testament laws got that specific, did you? Well, this is what the Old Testament people understood was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, in the Old Testament context, we think of this as like retaliation. Well, you did this to me, so I'm going to do this to you. And the Old Testament law is not promoting retaliation. What is the Old Testament doing? It's trying to control the excesses by saying what the payment, what the the punishment should exactly be. It's the punishment should fit the crime. So if someone punches you in the face, you don't say eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, I'm going to punch you back. No, the point of the law is that if someone does something to you, the punishment should be equal to what happened to you. And so Jesus is saying, okay, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Give judgment properly when offenses take place on you. But Jesus says this, do not resist an evil person. Okay, and again, just as the last phrase, don't make any oaths, doesn't necessarily mean you can't take an oath in court. This phrase, don't resist an evil person, doesn't mean if you see someone evil, you just let them do whatever they want and walk away and don't resist them. Let them do it. What is Jesus trying to say? Most people agree that Jesus is speaking on the level of like personal vengeance rather than like on a judicial legal system. So this principle of non-retaliation means, in effect, that you and I will refuse to descend to the level of the person who has offended us, and we will not return evil for evil. Jesus is regularly using hyperbole. Okay, and if you don't know what hyperbole is, it's exaggeration for the sake of effect. Hang out with me, and you'll see hyperbole in like 10 seconds. Okay, like, hey, see, there, I just used it, right? Someone caught that. And thank you, Eric. And so the idea is that Jesus is making these statements for effect. And when he says, don't resist an evil person, he's not saying just let injustice flow like the rivers. No, he says let justice flow like the rivers. But when it comes to you as an individual person, we do not retaliate. We do not fight back. For example, why do I know he's using hyperbole? Let's look at these next examples that Jesus says. If someone punches you in the cheek, what are you supposed to do? Turn the other cheek. Then you're supposed to turn it back again and just let them, you know, pew, 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 pew. or you just, after you've done it twice, that's all Jesus matters about. 
No, the implication is, is that if someone punches you in the face, you don't punch them back. You just turn the other cheek and you want to hit me again? Go ahead. Or the next example, someone sues you for your shirts. What do you do? You give them your coat. Like, this is insane. This is just crazy. That if someone's like, I'm coming after you for a million dollars, Jesus is like, you know what? You want my house too? How many of you would be like, that's my lifestyle? That's what I would do. Or the next one, if someone says to walk a mile, you go too. What does that mean? Well, in this day, a Roman soldier had authority and would, could tell like Peter, for example, Peter, pick up that suitcase and walk it with me a mile. And Peter would have to do what? Pick up the suitcase and walk the mile with the Roman soldier. And what Jesus is actually saying, you know what? Be willing to take that suitcase even another mile. Ask the Roman centurion, hey, do you need more help? Can I take it there? Which is crazy because if we actually had people who ruled over us and walked into our house and said, get out of here and take this and walk it that way, how many of you would be like, oh, okay, let's, can I take it even further for you? And Jesus in this final example says, give to those who ask you and don't deny the one who wants to borrow from you. Man. I hope the Spirit will do this. He will like actually begin to show you ways in which you and I are still people who are an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You blasphemed me. You made me mad. You slandered me. So you know what? I'm going to do that back to you. Or my boss did this to me. Or my coworker did this to me. Or my neighbor is so loud on the weekends that on Monday morning, I'm going to blare my music as loud as I can to wake him up. Or these realities where we are people who continue to be eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that we need to get away from that and actually be people of what we would call the cruciformed life, be shaped and formed by the cross. Jesus here is not demanding something that he himself has not lived. Jesus, as he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the God incarnate being put on the cross, doesn't jump off the cross and start instituting judgment right away, does he? He hangs there for you and me. He turns the other cheek. He walks the extra mile. He gives to those who ask him. This is the way of the cross. This is the way of a citizenship people who belong to a new world. We had a family discussion about this, and we all looked at each other and was like, this is stupid. Why would you live that way? Like, that's just honest. So, this are, our dinners are, you never know what's going to happen in our dinners, right? But this one was like, why would you do that? That's silly. And again, Here's why we do that. It's because when we live this way, the presence of God is with us. In fact, only through the presence of God do we get the power of God to live this way. And when we live in the presence of God and in His power, there is joy in the midst of all of this hardship. And in the idea of taking the way of the cross, 
When someone slaps you and you turn the other cheek, we're going to get over this in a few weeks, it's the idea of forgiveness. It's the idea of absorbing the pain. You know, whenever there's friction between you and your spouse or you and your friends or whoever, you and your coworker, someone has to actually absorb the hurts. And this is what Jesus is saying, is that the cruciform life is the ability to absorb the pain, to absorb the hurt, so that that relationship can continue. And we do that because on the cross, Jesus absorbed all of your pain and all of your punishments. And the degree to which we begin to see the beauty of Jesus absorbing our pain and taking His punishment our punishment upon Him, will be the degree to which we're able to give to those who ask. And don't deny the one who wants to borrow from you. And I know because there's potentially, like me, self-righteous people out there, how long do I have to give to people? If they ask for $10 every day, do I have to give them $10 every day of my life? Like, isn't that, isn't that where we want to go, some of us? I don't think, again, Jesus is saying, no matter what people ask, you just give. There's wisdom at some point at not letting a person keep and continuing borrowing from you, isn't there? I would say yes. But I would also ask this question, at what points do you cut it off? Do you cut it off when you feel like you're being used? Or do you cut it off because it's actually in benefit of the person who's actually you're helping? And most of the time, we're like, you know what, that's the third time I've given him 50 bucks, and every time I give him 50 bucks, he went to the bar, he bought a bike for his kid, and then he went and, I don't know, bought lottery tickets. And then we're like, we're done. And rather than help him, teach him, walk with him with the money, we're like, no, that was so mean, I'm so offended, I'm not giving him any more money. Okay, let me just ask you a question. Is that how Jesus treats you? Does Jesus give you $50 of grace every minute? And how many times do you abuse that grace? He doesn't just cut it off because he's mad at you. He actually cuts it off and begins to provide discipline for you to help you grow. And this is what Jesus is asking us to be, a cruciform people who will absorb the pain of when wrong has been done to us and go the extra mile to serve people because that is what he has done for you and me. Okay, if that's not hard enough, let's go to the last one. Verse 43, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? I wish we had today's version. We'd be like, aren't even the Democrats doing that? Aren't even the Republicans doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. So be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The people had heard it said, love your neighbor, and hate your enemy. Isn't that interesting? Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Do you think that's anywhere in the Old Testament, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy? 
Where did that phrase come from? You've heard it said. This was a common statement among the Jewish rabbis and teachers that they were teaching the people of Israel. Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. See, the Old Testament scriptures are often replete with this idea of loving your neighbor, but the Jews began to get very particular on who their neighbor actually was. They began to get exclusive rights on who they wanted their neighbors to be. And they began to define their neighbors, if you know anything about Jewish people, as, first of all, you have to be Jews. If you're not a Jew, we can hate you. If you're a Gentile, we want nothing to do with you. We're not going to fellowship with you. We're not going to hang out with you. We're going to exclude you. And they began to hate the Gentiles. And this phrase began to get more and more. And if you want to know more about these Jewish laws, I'll give you the mission on. You can read through these crazy realities of how they began to define who their neighbor was. And they began to think that, well, if I only called to love those people, then I am free to hate everyone else. This is why Jesus has to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is your neighbor? It's anyone you meet on the street. That's your neighbor. So the problem that the Jewish people of identifying who their neighbor was is really an issue in their day. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to tell you something new. I'm going to tell you not only to love your neighbor, but to love your enemies. To pray for those who persecute you. Like this is, if I could, in a sense, the last one to absorb when people do things to you, that's reactive. They are doing things to you. Jesus now is going to go on the proactive side and say, you know those people that hate you? Go love them. Loving them is not just stepping aside and saying, well, when they come into my life, I'll be nice and give them a smile. No, loving your neighbor is proactively seeking out the people that don't like you Loving them and serving them. And pray for them. Okay? I mean, how many of you, you think of the person who has hurt you the most in your life. Can you sit there and pray, Jesus, bless them? But what does Jesus do on the cross? Who does he pray for? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Here's Jesus on the cross praying for his enemies, the ones that are actually putting him to death, and he is there praying for them, asking the Father to forgive them. And so Jesus says, if you love only your friends, you're no different than anyone else. You're no different than the pagans. You're no different than the tax collectors. In other words, the follower of Jesus must not stoop to the level and the low standards of our society. He is telling us to pattern and to form our lives after himself. And the disciples of Jesus, when we live this way, will have a divine quality of love that begins to permeate a city, a neighborhood, and a country. In fact, everywhere else Jesus speaks, he elevates love among the Christians as the chief characteristic of the mark that will actually identify them To love really be a child of God and to have the good news kingdom deep in our souls. Who are the people that are hard for you to love? Who are those people God is calling you to pray for? 
You may not say, I don't have enemies. Well, you have people you don't like. You have people who have done things to you. And Jesus is saying to us today, be truthful. Speak only the things that you're going to do. Be honest about what you're going to do. And when people do wrong to you, absorb that pain, and then, then go out and do more for them, and, and learn to love those who hate you. Because Jesus says in verse 48, maybe the most damning verse in the Bible for some of us, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How many of you just want to quit? I'm like, well, that was fun. I tried. I'm never going to be perfect. And this is what Jesus is getting after. He's not, he wants us to strive for this ethic. He wants Redemption Church to strive to be people who are honest in their speech, who absorb wrongdoing, and then love people. Because this is who Jesus is. And when we understand that is who He is for us, our lives begin to get shaped around that cross image. And we begin this cruciform life of having a life shaped by the reality of Jesus on the cross for us. And that's how we be salt and light. You want to be salt and light this week? You want to be a, a missionary for Jesus this week? Reconcile with your enemy. Love your neighbor. Go two miles with me on a jog, not just one. That's a joke. You can laugh. The reality is, is this is what Jesus is calling us to be. Knowing that when we don't live up to that perfect standard of being perfect, this is where we need the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, like in 10 seconds. Later on in the book, there's this thing called the cross that takes care of all of your imperfections. All of the times that you are not truthful, all of the times that you don't go the extra mile, all of the times that you don't love your neighbor, all of those times have been forgiven. Every one of those that you'll do tomorrow has already been forgiven. And so you can be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect as you look to the cross. So rather than this being a damning statement to us as a church, it is a statement that makes our hearts and our minds look to the cross, and it is there we find perfection. It is there that we find Jesus. And it is there that we will find hope and life as a people. So Jesus, help us to be people who are truthful, who absorb the pain, that others have inflicted upon us and learn to love them, to love our enemies as you loved your enemies. You've loved us. And I pray that you will help us to be people who, in the midst of this hard way of living, would actually find joy in it. Because when we live this way, we will actually encounter you. We will encounter Jesus when we live the way he lived. And so God, this week as we be truthful in our speech and as we absorb the wrong and as we love our enemies, meet us there. May we experience you. 
And we ask these things in Jesus' name.